Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with film editor Barry Malkin. Mr. Malkin has edited The Rain People, The Godfather Part Two, and Cops and Robbers. Cops and Robbers will be shown Saturday, November 18, 2017 at 2 p.m. at the main library on 615 Church Street in the auditorium. More later, on to the interview. We're showing the movie Cops and Robbers, and the screenwriter of Cops and Robbers, Donald E. Westlake, had this to say about film editing. Film editing is a wonderful, arcane art, like mosaics. I love to watch it being done, but they, of course, hate to be watched. Do you agree <laughs> with this statement? Yeah, that's, uh, that's very perceptive. Uh, I, I met Donald Westlake in the course of... Uh, editing cops and robbers. He used to like to come by and visit, and uh, he was a terrific guy to talk to, very funny. Um, I don't remember him particularly hanging around watching me work, but uh, he may have had more of an experience with that on other movies, of uh, other books of his which were adapted for the screen. Um, but we, we used to chat occasionally about the craft, as I vaguely remember. Joseph Bologna, um, who was the star of Cops and Robbers, had this to say about the director, um, Aram Avarkian. Um, you got to work with a director who would bring creativity out in you. He was that kind of guy, very bright, funny. He set an environment where you could be the best of you, a joy of working for him. Uh, did you find this to be true with you, too? Oh, yes. Uh, when Arm was editing, uh, I was an assistant to him on, on uh, the motion picture Lilith, which was directed by Robert Rawson. Um, this was uh, shortly before I became a full-fledged editor, and uh, he was terrific. We didn't use the word mentor back then, but I guess he was. I, I kind of looked upon him as, a, as an old uncle. We became very, very close through the years, and especially so while I was working on Cops and Robbers. Cops and Robbers, as we talk about, was directed by Aram Varkian, and who was also a film editor. And was it hard for Mr. Varkian to let go of the editing duties? Did he leave you alone to do your job? Yes, and very much so. I had all of the liberty in the world. He wasn't really interested in jumping into the fray, except for one experience, which I remember. There was a particular sequence which he wasn't happy with, and he came into work one day, and he said, let, let me take a shot at it. He did. He worked very hard all day trying to finesse the sequence. At the end of the day, he said, I give up. Put it back the way you have it. So um, that confirmed the confidence he had in me. 
You mentioned earlier about Lilith, and you were an assistant editor for Mr. Avarkian on the movie Lilith. And this, this was the final movie of Robert Rosen, and I happen to be a huge fan of that movie, and it was released in 64, and I was always impressed with the adult content of the movie. And was there concerns between uh, Mr. Rosen and Avarkian about the adult content of that movie and how far they could take it? I don't recall that at all. I really don't. I came on to the film a few months after it began. I I wasn't working on it while it was being shot. I was working on another movie, but uh, I did... um, The the fellow who was the assistant editor at the beginning had an understanding that he would leave after the film was shot, and uh, I consequently came on in this place and worked on the phone for probably six or seven months until it was finished. Uh, I, I don't remember any discussions of, of that kind, uh, and, and I was privy to, to all of them. You were also the associate editor on another Avarkian movie, End of the Road, and another interesting movie. Could you discuss your responsibilities on that movie as associate editor? Aram Aram Avarkian was supposed to do a film, I don't know, I guess this was about a year, year and a half prior to End of the Road. He was supposed to do a film called Paper Lion. That was based on a book by George Plumpton. And, uh, in fact, George Plumpton and Aram Avakian went back a long ways. They had uh, spent years together in Paris after the war. Anyway, something happened before the film was about to begin. Although Aram has shot quite a bit of pre-production footage of actual football games, but there was some sort of falling out. I don't think it was between Plimpton and Arm. I, I think it may have been a studio kind of thing. And anyway, Arm was uh, released from the film, so to speak, fired. At, at that time, I was actually working for Avakian on a documentary called One Night Stands, which was done for ABC News. And following that, I went to work on another documentary, and then following that, I went to work at about the time that uh, End of the Road was starting to go into pre-production. I went to work on a film called uh, The Rain People. While I was finishing that film, I got a call from Avakian, and he said, you got to come help us. As soon as you get back to New York, you have to come work on End of the Road. And I said, Aram, I can only give you three months. I promised my wife that I would take her on a nice long vacation. So I came on the phone for three or four months. I I was very much involved in the opening of the film, which involved some researching a lot of uh, stock photographs, and uh, that, that was one part of the opening. A couple, there were probably three or four scenes that comprised the opening, and uh, I spent a lot of my time, my tenure on the film, 
working on that opening and a couple other scenes through the uh, throughout the film. But uh, a fellow named Bob Lovett was the main editor. I I came on and uh, did my associate editor duties. You mentioned the Rain People, and you were the film editor on that film, and it was directed by uh, Francis Ford Coppola. And, and I read a quote that you said you described the Rain People as one of the most interesting experiences that I've had in the business. Could you explain why? First of all, you know, Francis Coppola and I were childhood friends, although we hadn't seen each other since we were about 15 years old when his family moved away from the neighborhood where I lived. And we met up in the film business quite serendipitously. Actually, this also involves Aramavagian. I was starting to freelance as a film editor and uh, went over to Aram's cutting room one day to meet him uh, to have lunch together. And while I was waiting for him to uh, finish up whatever work he was doing at the time, I idly picked up a script that was laying around his cutting room. The title of it was You're a Big Boy Now, and it said Screenplay by Francis Ford Coppola. So uh, when uh, Aram and I went out to lunch, I said, gee, I I noticed uh, the name of the writer on that script. Francis Ford Coppola. I said, I used to know a guy named Francie Coppola who lived around my neighborhood when I was a kid. I wonder if it's the same guy. Anyway, I don't know, six months, nine months later, I got a call from Arum, and he said, Francis very much wants to see you. Come over to the studio. They, They were mixing the sound at that time. So, uh, oh, actually, as the story went, Aram asked Francis whether he knew a guy named Barry Malkin. And Francis said, gee, I, I used to know a guy named Blackie Malkin, which was my nickname as a kid. And uh, so Aram called me up and kiddingly addressed me as Blackie, and he said, uh, Blackie, Francis wants you to come over. He wants to see you. So I did, and we renewed our friendship. And about, I guess it was about a year after that, something like that, Francis called me and he said, uh, I'm going to do this film, The Rain People, and uh, would you consider doing it? And I jumped at the opportunity. The reason why it was so interesting for me, aside from the fact that renewing a friendship, uh, which then went on for many years later and to this day, I really had not ever been around the, film, the making of the films on, on which I had worked. Uh, I mean, I had started out working, uh, doing my apprenticeship at an editorial service where we worked on all kinds of little things, commercials, trailers, industrial films, what have you know, everything but dramatic films. And then I did get a chance to work on a few dramatic films as an apprentice 
an assistant and, a, and then an editor, but uh, I, I really never spent any time on location or really on a set, just minutes here or there. So here I was uh, working on this very interesting project, which started shooting in New York, actually, in the suburbs of New York, Nassau County. We traveled from New York. We traveled south, shooting all along the way, sometimes stopping for a day here or there or a week. And uh, we traveled as far south as your state, actually, to uh, Chattanooga. We, we, we shot there for a few days, and then we wended our way northwest to Nebraska, where uh, we, we shot for quite a while. Uh, that, 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 that was a stop of, I don't know, six weeks to two months. I can't remember exactly. So I was around the shooting. I, I made a lot of good friends on that crew, among the crew and the cast. Many of them are still very good friends of mine to this day. And, uh, you know, I, I was exposed to other people's crafts, uh, you know, what, 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 what the wardrobe people did, how the makeup was put on an actor, uh, the grips, the gaffers, uh, you know, I was... They'd sometimes need an extra hand. They'd grab me and they say, hey, pick up this piece of lumber and help us lay a dolly track. And, uh, and we visited many different places and interacted with all sorts of people. And uh, historically, it was, it was an interesting time. And, and, you know, there were a couple of very sad events that uh, kind of bookended the making of the movie. Uh, just as we were beginning to shoot, or possibly a day before we began shooting, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And while we were in Nebraska, nearing the end of the shoot, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. So the tenor of the time was very interesting, to say the least. All those things and many others, which I don't have at the tip of my tongue right now, made it a very, very interesting project. I was watching the uh, documentary Filmmaker, which is about the making of the Rain People. Yeah, and at sure. the end of the movie, Francis Coppola is sitting behind a desk and you're on a couch listening to him talk about the movie. And looking at that movie, I thought that you were like the psychiatrist and Coppola was the <laughs> patient talking about his film. Was that what your relationship was like working with Coppola? No, not at all. Uh, I remember when that scene was shot, actually, uh, I had... After we finished shooting and then took a break for about a week, I went out to Los Angeles, where I'd never been. Uh, all of my experience prior to that had been in New York. So here I had you know, gone, gone out with this film and had the opportunity of traveling all around the country. And now I was uh, in Hollywood working at Warner Brothers, 
studio. I had never really been to a, a movie studio before. And, and that, that was all interesting. And, uh, you know, while, while I was editing the film, and, and Francis's office was just a couple of doors away from mine, uh, uh, he was very busy with, with a lot of other things. He was intent on moving from Los Angeles and uh, almost every weekend he would fly up to San Francisco looking for both a place to live and uh, some business space. He, he had plans of having a little mixing studio and, uh, and, and in fact, had, had gone to Germany at, at some point to a exposition of, uh, I guess, new movie equipment, and he had bought he had, he had bought the equipment uh, on, on which one could mix a movie. So it was on order, just waiting to be told where to be delivered. And so, you know, Francis, not to get too far off track, Francis's head was very much into getting out of Hollywood, setting up shop somewhere else. And uh, so a lot of his energies were there. He's also, I remember he wrote a script uh, for Bill Cosby. It was based on the film Heaven Can Wait, which years later Warren Beatty made. But uh, I, don't, I don't think out of the script Francis did. But anyway, Francis did a script for Cosby. Maybe wrote some other stuff I, I can't recall. So he, he was quite busy trying to make some money. Uh, he had a family and a couple of young kids. And uh, there were people, although he had a lot of independence, and we really weren't bothered by executives at, uh, at Warner Brothers. You know, I don't think he made a great deal of money on it. It was just it was a labor of love, and, and that was... An interesting project, but uh, no, I didn't have to. <laughs> I didn't have to offer any psychological help. I know I, I know I was. Uh, I think sat down on the couch in Francis's office while George Lucas was shooting that scene. I think I was just tired from whatever work I had done earlier in the day. Well, as you mentioned, Filmmaker was directed by George Lucas. And yeah. Do you recall about George Lucas making his movie about the movie? Well, George, whom I met on the film, um, George, as I recall, had won a scholarship to Warner Brothers. Uh, his film, his, uh, I don't know whether, I guess you'd call it his thesis film, at uh, USC, won an award, and I guess that was uh, the payoff, uh, an apprenticeship of some sort at, at Warner Brothers. And George actually was very interested in animation. George, uh, George is a pretty good artist himself. He had made this film, THX 1138, while at USC, and uh, he came to Warner Brothers, and there really wasn't much going on at Warner Brothers, as I recall. Anyway, 
to make a long story short, he wound up as uh, an apprentice and assistant to Coppola. And uh, Francis, before the rain, people had, had done a film called Finian's Rainbow, which I think was done at Warner Brothers. And I don't remember whether George had worked on that as Francis's assistant or not. But anyway, he came along on the rain people and he did three things essentially worked as Francis's assistant or associate a guy Francis liked to bounce ideas off he also had a 16 millimeter eclair camera uh, and, and he would shoot uh, the making of the film from time to time and uh, with the idea that this uh, that the finished subject could be used as some sort of a promotional thing. I don't know whether they still do this, but back at that time it was very common for movie studios to uh, have somebody shooting while a film was being made and uh, they make all sorts of promotional material out of it and get free plays on television, I guess, late into the night. So anyway, George would would do that. And uh, most importantly for George was he was rewriting his college film, THX, into a feature-length script, which Francis hoped to produce and eventually did produce. And uh, while we were in post-production on The Rain People, George, you know, was working in our warrant of offices, and he was actually drawing, making hundreds of drawings, a storyboard for what became THX. During that time, George and I became very friendly. In fact, that at one point, while we were in Nebraska, George said to me, you know, my girlfriend is coming out to visit me, and she's an assistant editor. Do you think you need any extra help in the cutting room? We had uh, rented a, an empty store in Nebraska and set up a cutting room. Warner Brothers had sent us out all the traditional film editing equipment that one would have. And I said, sure, I could use an extra hand. So George's girlfriend, Marcia, came on to my crew. I had brought a fellow out from New York to be my assistant. Marcia joined us and uh, helped helped out while we were on the road. And then, you know, we went back to L.A. and, you know, she went back to whatever was her job. I think she was working at a film library at that time in Hollywood, and uh, George was uh, you know, in the pre-production stage of THX, although I don't think there was any money in the bank, but it was hoped for. And anyway, he and I became pretty good friends, and we used to hang out together, go to the movies together on weekends. I accompanied George and Marsha up to the Monterey area in California to help them pick out a place where to get married, and they did get married, although 
unfortunately, they were divorced some years later after, sometime after Star Wars opened. But anyway, he, he was another, you know, we were just 25 people, as I recall, on, on that Rain People crew, including the two main actors. Um, when we got out to Nebraska, they uh, added an occasional extra hand here and there. They, an extra carpenter would be needed or another assistant cameraman and so on and so forth and of course the story required other actors uh, although up until uh, our time in Nebraska uh, I think all, all of the shooting that was done just included the stars James Conn and Shirley Knight so um well, you know, there were a lot of terrific friendships that came out of that. In fact, uh, I, I got a call maybe 15 minutes ago from a guy who was one of the producers of the Rain People. His name was Ronald Colby. I, I, I became, I, I met Ron on the film uh, when I got out to California. Uh, I, I, I spent a lot of my free time with him, our wives became friendly, and uh, Ron had gone to college, uh, undergraduate college, Hofstra College, I guess called Hofstra University today. He had gone to college with Francis, and Ron was an actor. And uh, Francis, if I have the story straight, brought Ron Colby out to uh, Hollywood to appear in his film, Finian's Rainbow. And after that, I don't know if this was by choice or whether acting jobs was slim, but Ron was interested in production. So he was one of the producers on The Rain People, along with another fellow named Bart Patton. Uh, I don't know whether... Francis had gone to school with Bart, but Bart Patton was another guy who was a former actor who I think had appeared in Francis's first film, the name of which escapes me, Psycho something or other. No, Dementia 13 was the name of it. So both of these guys who were former actors uh, were the producers. Uh, Bart knew a lot more about the te technical aspects of filmmaking and also served as the assistant di director on the film. And uh, Ron uh, was more than a liaison guy with a lot of different companies and services and things like that uh, that one deals with, although after that, he became much more skilled and uh, became a production manager on movies and made a whole bunch of documentaries himself. Uh, he had an interest in photography um, and shot a lot, a lot of his own documentaries. Anyway, oddly enough, he, was, he lives in California and he's visiting New York this week because a granddaughter of his is graduating from NYU this week. So 
he called, uh, hoping to get together. So there was Ron, and there was this fellow, Bart, and Francis, and we were all around the same age, give or take a year, and uh, our wives became friendly with one another, so uh, it was a lot of fun. You were also uh, the film editor on Life with Zoe, I mean Life Without Zoe, the segment from New York Stories, and that was co-written by Francis Coppola and his daughter, uh, Sophia Coppola. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sophia Coppola has become a director in her own right, a very fine one. And was Sophia Coppola allowed to come into the editing room to watch and learn? Well, I don't remember her ever doing that. I mean, I've known Sophia since she's a little girl. And, uh, you know, her, her, her dad, uh, you know, she grew up on a, a very big estate in which wine was grown and where there was also a mixing studio. And, you know, the Coppola family generally traveled with that, at least in, in, in my experiences on the many films that I worked on for Francis, I don't remember Sophia ever coming into the editing room. Um, she may have come into the mixing studio a couple of times to watch us, because that's much more fun um, for for a lay person. Uh, but, you know, she grew up in the, in the film business. She's the little baby in the first Godfather film who you see being baptized in the baptismal scene. You know, she was an, an infant at, at that time. And uh, she appeared in a number of her dad's films, uh, of which I edited some. Peggy Sue Got Married, uh, Rumblefish. Uh, I, I can't remember others, but I know there were others I worked on in which Sophia appeared. So uh, she, she got a, a good dose of the business, you know. If not through the genes, just proximity. You edited a very early film of Jonathan Demme's called Last Embrace, and yeah. he just recently passed away. Uh, could you talk yeah. about your collaboration with him? Yeah, I'm, just, I'm kind of in mourning for Jonathan. He was uh, Jonathan was one of my favorite people. I, uh, uh, I was really... Uh, Saddened uh, by his passing. Um, Jonathan, back then, um, I, I vaguely knew of Jonathan. He he had a movie uh, that had come out. I don't know a year or two. I guess it was prior to uh, Last Embrace. It had two titles. Well, all I remember was Citizens Band. I don't know if that was the original title. And it was also handled with care. Yeah, but the, I, I can't remember which title was ruling. But anyway, you know the film I'm talking about. So I had seen that film, you know, just I didn't know anything about it. Just one of these times where you walk into a movie theater, you don't know anything about it. And uh, I remember enjoying it very much. So I, I, I was quite surprised when, I don't know when it was, Six months, a year later, after seeing it, when I got a call from Jonathan, and uh, we 
job. And uh, we, we became very close um, during the making of the film, during the post-production. We had a lot of grand times together. One of the things that I, I, I was always saddened by was while I was finishing work on Last Embrace, Jonathan asked me to do his next film, which was called Mel, Melvin and Howard. And uh, it was a very good script. And uh, I very much would have liked to have done it. But just before Jonathan having asked me, I, I had been asked to do another film. And the other film was a movie, not a very good movie, and one that really didn't go anywhere. It was called Windows. But two very good friends were involved in Windows, Gordon Willis, the cameraman, who was going to be making his first and probably last directorial stint. Francis Coppola's sister, Talia Shire, who was starring in the film, was also an old friend, you know, somebody I've known since she was a little girl, and Francis and I were first friends, so... They had twisted my arm to do their movie, and I had agreed. And so I had to turn down John, Jonathan Demme, and, uh, which I really didn't want to do. But um, at any rate, Jonathan asked me to recommend somebody, and I, I recommended a fellow who had been my assistant some years back. They went on and had a very fruitful working relationships on many movies, uh, starting with Melvin and Howard and going through a whole bunch of films as Jonathan went on and became more prominent. But uh, Jonathan, Jonathan lived part-time in Manhattan, really just a couple of blocks away from where I live. And uh, we run into each other uh, from time to time, just at the, like the neighbor, neighborhood coffee shop. And we sit down and talk about old times and talk about maybe we could work again together sometime, but it never worked out because of schedules. But uh, I actually, I didn't know he was ill. I, you know, I hadn't seen him for a while usually hear these things through the grapevine, but I hadn't. I actually opened my computer early one morning, and a fellow who had worked on Last Embrace with me, I think he was my apprentice at the time, had sent me from an email from L.A. alerting me to Jonathan's death. So that's how I learned about it. When I look over the movies you've edited and the directors you've worked with, Coppola, Varkin, Demi, Eula Grossberg, Bard, um, Arthur Penn, Robert N. Young, uh, you seem to be drawn to kind of anti-established, non-traditional filmmakers and films. Is this statement true, and why are you drawn to this type of filmmaker? Well, I don't know. It's hard to answer. Yeah, I, I think... I think what you're saying is true. I do like, um, I, I guess I'm not one 
for commercial films, and I guess I've turned down as a lot of editors have for one reason or another. I've turned down a lot of films through the years that became much more famous than a lot of the movies I worked on. I mean, with the exception of a few films that I worked on, a lot, a lot a bunch of them are fairly obscure. A lot of them made very little money, but 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 I enjoyed <laughs> my work on them, nevertheless. And uh, you know, it was a combination of what was being offered, how it fit into your schedule. You know, whether you were going to be finished with the job you were working on in time to start the one you were being offered. You know, the need to make a living as well. Uh, one couldn't stay out of work that long in between jobs. At least I couldn't. And, you know, I wound up working with a lot of people who were friends in one way or another. You know, a lot of a lot of the people I worked for, I met along the way. I Some of them may have been directors of films and uh, editors for whom I worked while I was an assistant, although I had a, I really had a rather short uh, apprenticeship and assistantship, but you know, I, I met some directors along the way and then a couple of years later I was recommended to them and uh, but they weren't like unknown quantities to me I met them uh, in film buildings in which I was working and they were sometimes your neighbor down the hall or or socially at, you know a party something like that so I think I'm talking about people like Ulu Grossbard and uh, who, who was a stage director as well as a film director and uh, you know I, I knew him through various people and uh, we we weren't unknown to each other I, I met Arthur Penn actually uh, while he was doing the film uh, Little Big Man which was edited by by uh, Dee Dee Allen, for whom I had worked as an apprentice, I, I came on to Little Big Man just to lend a hand and oh, edit the, the opening and close of that movie. In this interview um, between a journalist and Dustin Hoffman, as a 121-year-old man, you're probably familiar with it, since you seem to be quite the historian. And uh, so I, I knew Arthur, you know, and then worked with him some years later. And uh, a, lot, a lot of things happened like that. I mean, I, I, I was I was lucky. I, I ran into two childhood friends just, uh, you know, when I was beginning. Um, one was a guy who actually got me my first job in the business. Um, when I finished college and, and my stint in the Army and wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do, I, I had a friend. His name was Gene Sultan. He was another childhood friend who lived 
in the same neighborhood where Francis and I had lived. And uh, Gene, when I first met him, his name was Gene Sultan. He was uh, a child actor, but we were we were good friends because we used to play baseball together. And Gene just lived around the neighborhood for about three years. And then I, I met up with him quite fortuitously uh, in midtown Manhattan one day. We just ran into each other on the street. And um, he was working for a company that made commercials. We discovered that we both liked foreign films and we were both jazz fans. So very often, on a Friday night after the school week was over, uh, I would come into Manhattan from Queens, where I lived, to meet up with my friend Gene uh, so that we could go out on the town. And uh, he often wouldn't quite be finished with work because a, a commercial would be shooting late. And so I would just hang around in the corner of the stage watching the goings-on. And uh, anyway, that little exposure to uh, the film business, if you could call it that, created an interest in me. Anyway, I don't know, jumping ahead, I guess about a year and a half or two, while I was in the Army doing my six-month stretch, I wrote to Gene and I said, Please be on the lookout for a job for me, any kind of job, because uh, I'd like to. I think I'd like to try my hand uh, in your business. So uh, shortly after I was discharged, he um, said, "A film editor I know, a guy who used to work for my company, has uh, opened a little editorial service." Why don't you go over and talk to him? And so I did. And uh, this man, his name was Mort Fallick, F-A-L-L-I-C-K, not P-H-A-L, said he, he would love to offer me a job, but he was just getting started, and he really didn't have enough business to put anybody on. And uh, he said, well, you can go around town knocking on doors. You can use my name as a... Uh, reference. I was starting to do that when all of a sudden I came home one night and my m mother told me that uh, this gentleman, Mort Fallick, had called and wanted me to call him in the morning. And, and I did, and he hired me. So that, that was my start in the business, you know, and that's where I learned how to be an assistant editor and, and, and most of the duties. And that, 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 are assigned to an assistant. Uh, I, I was Mort's only employee, and it was a sink or swim situation. Anyway, I, I'm getting far afield from Gene Sultan, who was the guy who put me in touch. And and the other person was Francis Coppola, who also was a childhood friend and I just bumped into through Aramovakian, and, uh, you know, went on to have a long relationship with him. So uh, I, I, my friends have been very good to me. This is the last question, and 
if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. I'm, but a couple of years ago, I got in contact with producer Fred Ruse, and I was hoping he would do an interview with me about a movie I was going to show called Hammett. And he said the experience on Hammett was too painful, and you were the supervising editor on Hammett. Uh, could you discuss the problems of the production of that movie? Well, I... I really can't. I, I can tell you my, my involvement was strange. I had um, I had been offered the job by Vim Vanders, the director, and I, I was doing something else at the time. And uh, you know, I, I turned the job down. I had to turn it down. And um, I, I'm trying to recall what happened. Uh, you know. And I don't, I don't really know this from any personal experience. I may have read this. This was probably in some film books somewhere around the way. But um, Francis, who was the producer of Hammett, was, I guess, planning his film, One from the Heart, um, while... Hammett was in production, or simultaneously in pre-production, and I don't know what kind of problems they were having on on Hammett. You know whether they were script problems, casting problems, and the stories that I heard, which were kind of third-hand, was that uh, Francis shut down the production. Because he wanted to, he wanted to recast some of the film, and wanted to have some of it rewritten. And another story was that Francis shut it down because he wanted to use Fred Forrest, who was playing Hammett, to be one of the stars of the film One from the Heart. So I, you know. This is all third or fourth hand. I wasn't around. I don't know what happened. Anyway, I don't know how long the film was shut down. I happened to be uh, in Los Angeles on something quite unrelated, and uh, I ran into... uh, this fellow, I, I, whose name I mentioned earlier, Ron Colby, ran into him on the street and uh, was actually near a studio that that Coppola had, had bought and was running at the time. Um, and uh, my friend, my old friend Ron, who I hadn't seen for a long time, said, hey, come back, come inside, say hello to everybody, blah, blah, blah. So I went on to the lot and we wound up in Francis's office and they told me that they were going to start shooting Hammett again. You know, and I don't know, they were going to shoot for five weeks and sets were being built and there was some new casting and would I come on? And uh, I would have to finish it very, very quickly because they were so far behind in delivering the film. So I agreed to do that. I, I, I wasn't really engaged on another project at the time. And uh, I had a couple of other friends of mine 
to work alongside me so that we could really knock it out quickly, which we did. So, you know, Fred Roos probably knows all of the nitty-gritty, all all of the stories that I really can't tell you about, you know, and just allude to. So that's that was my involvement, and that's that's what I know about it. But I, I guess it was painful for Fred. <laughs> I would like to thank Barry Malkin for agreeing to do the interview. Remember, Cops and Robbers will be shown Saturday, November 18, 2017 at 2 o'clock at the main library on 615 Church Street in the auditorium. Today's music is from Cops and Robbers by Michelle Legrand. Everybody wants to score They're getting 